Welcome to the OKC First Church of the Nazarene podcast. At OKC First, we are learning to do three things, friendship with God, friendship with one another, and open friendship for the sake of the world. For more information about OKC First, please visit OKCFirst.com. It was an important day here at your church yesterday. I don't know how many times uh, we have in the history of our church run out of parking at 3 o'clock on a Saturday afternoon, but we did yesterday. There was a beautiful wedding right here. Jack and his new bride, both, I think they both are 83 years old, is that right? Beautiful. We're 84 years old, both. And then the 60, 65th wedding anniversary of Ron and Pat Wheeler sort of erupted back in the, uh, the Cole Center, and that was a beautiful thing. And at this room, in this room, we had the funeral for Melvin Hatley. Now, a lot of you, if you have come to the church here in recent years, you may not even know the name of Melvin Hatley, but let me tell you. Our being here is a direct result of the life of Melvin Hatley. The church used to be uh, situated down at Sixth and Francis, and Melvin Hatley, a man of great vision, saw this piece of ground, understood that the city was growing this way, and recognized that this is a very important patch of ground, that from this place, a church can help to reclaim more ground in the light of the resurrection, and so he made it happen. He made it happen. He made it happen as it had to do with the buildings. Even our last building down at Sixth and Francis and this building had so much to do with it. In fact, what, what I would say to you is this church learned to rely on this gift that this man had, this gift of vision, the capacity to be able to see in a place, and just a patch of ground to be able to see what God would envision. He also could do that with people. Someone that could look at a person and see the potential. The truth of the matter is, he, could, he liked uh, dogs that raced and horses that raced, and, and he could look at, a, at an animal that no one else would claim or want, and he could say, that one's going to win races, and he did very well <laughs> because he could see that potential in animals, but in people and in places. Vision is a gift that I would say, that I would say is spirit given. Now, all the time I'm saying to you, this is my favorite passage of Scripture. I know I am. Let me tell you, 1 Corinthians is not my favorite Scripture, and here's why. I get in trouble in 1 Corinthians all the time. I mean, there's a lot of stuff in 1 Corinthians that allows me to get in trouble. For example, today, I'm going to take aim, uh, and I need a, I'm going to ask for a preemptive apology here, okay? I'm just apologizing ahead of time for what I might say that might frustrate you. I'm going to take aim at today at the way that we have understood this concept of spiritual gifts. Because I think the ways that we have treated spiritual gifts and the inventories and all that kind of stuff and the results, I think at times we end up being guilty of the very same things that Paul is writing against in 1 Corinthians 12. Now, there is some really fun things for us to do and to enjoy and to celebrate at the end of today's sermon that has to do with the ways in which the Spirit enables us. But I think in order to get all the way there, we have to navigate around some other stuff. And in order to do that, we kind of have to go all the way back to last week. Now, if you weren't here last week, let me kind of catch you up a little bit. 
So the book of Acts, also a very difficult passage of Scripture, the entire book, because the Spirit goes to pushing religious peoples beyond their comfortable boundaries because God has seen fit to use the church to reach everybody, and sometimes the last people on board that train are the people in the church. And so God, in the book of Acts, by God's Spirit's pushing people beyond boundaries, yep, even them, gather them in too, yep, even them, even you all, even Samaritans. And so Philip goes to Samaria, these nasty, dirty, wrong-headed Samaritans are down there. Jews typically and traditionally hated these Samaritans, would not associate with them. We're not allowed to associate with them. And here's Philip, one of the apostles, one of the disciples, one of the chosen leaders, down there to preach. And so he preaches and he baptizes In the audience that day, someone who heard the word and was baptized was a man by the name of Simon who was a magician. And Simon was compelled by these words, and Simon was also baptized that day. But these people did not receive the Spirit for one reason or another, and we talked about that last week. It took Peter and John coming from Jerusalem, having seen the resurrected Christ, These apostles came down, they laid their hands on these newly baptized people, and that's when they received the Spirit. Now, Simon the magician thought this was the coolest trick of all tricks, that you could lay your hands on people, and they would somehow then manifest that they had the Spirit. Now, we're not exactly sure what that looked like when they manifested that they had the Spirit. We're not sure what that looked like. We know what it kind of looked like in the second chapter of Acts, but we don't know what it looked like in the eighth chapter of Acts. Whatever it was, it was impressive. And Simon the magician, who liked to impress people, with tricks especially, said to Peter and John, you know, I would really love to have that ability. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the apostles, uh, through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, (laughs) saying, give me also this power so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Now as you might expect, Simon Peter did not take kindly to this suggestion that the Spirit and the capacity to unleash the Spirit could be bought. And so Simon Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain God's gift with money. You have no part or share in this for your heart is not right before God. In other words, you wanted this Spirit thing to be about you. All right, now everybody with me so far? You wanted this whole spirit thing to be about you and what you could do and what you could manifest and what you could demonstrate and all the folks you could impress. You wanted this gift so that you could draw attention to yourself. Peter goes on from there to say, you're in bad shape. You're in bad shape and God's really unhappy with you and your trajectory is really bad and terrible things are going to happen to you. Go in peace. (laughs) It was so bad that Simon said, oh, hey, hang on. Pray for me that these things won't happen to me. Another way to say it. Pray for me that I might be liberated from this preoccupation with myself. Pray for me that I am not somehow condemned to this destructive, this this destruction that you have described here. Pray for me. And we don't know what happened. 
We don't know if they did pray for him. We don't know how Simon ended up. We do know, because this is what the 8th chapter of Acts wants us to understand, we do know this, that it is a dangerous thing to have too much of yourself in view as you discuss the Spirit. Because more of you means less of the Spirit. That's never good. In fact, what we need is more of the Spirit and less of us. But churches don't always function that way. <laughs> Take, for example, the, the church in Corinth. Now, Corinth was a very big, very important city. Very big, very important. It was a place of high commerce. There were all kinds of different kinds of people coming to Corinth, and, and sometimes they would just be passing through, and sometimes they would take up residence. Either way, they were bringing all kinds of ideas to Corinth. People were making money hand over fist. It was, it was the land of new money. And so a lot of things that we still believe can be associated with new money, it was kind of associated with them too. They were known region-wide as people who weren't very good with their money. There was a lot of it, but that didn't mean they were very good with it. They were very hard on the poor around them. And it actually became known far and wide as a place where you go to party and get drunk. In fact, it was kind of understood as that era's sin city. In fact, in fact, in plays and dramatic presentations, you could always expect for someone to play the role of the Corinthians, the Corinthian, which, which meant that that person would always be seen on the stage as someone who was drunk, self-oriented, someone who had a loose living sort of posture. And we're going to talk more about that, that particular posture, in the next couple of weeks. But here was another phrase that circulated. Man, you're out there just living like a Corinthian. Which could have meant that you were drunk all the time. It absolutely meant that you were incredibly self-oriented. What's in it for me? That was the culture in which Paul decides to plant a church. <laughs> Now, somewhere around 50, common era, somewhere around there. So, let's say 20-some-odd uh, years after the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ, 17-ish sorts of years after the conversion of Saul, who becomes Paul, Paul plants this church in Sin City. And strangely enough, the culture around the church seeped into the church. That's, that actually is not strange at all. It happens all the time. So the culture around the church seeped into the church. Paul was there, we think, for about a year and a half. After that, he goes to Ephesus. But he loves these people. He loves this church. He still understands himself as a, as a parent to this church. And he was all the time writing back to this church. We only have two letters. We think there were four letters from Paul to the church in Corinth. We have First and Second Corinthians. This church in Corinth sometimes couldn't get out of its own way. Sometimes they didn't do church very well. And when they didn't do church very well, it was typically because too much of the outside world had gotten in through the doors of the church. And the way that the church was operating now looked more like the outside world and less like Christ. Let's, let's say this here. I, I think we should plant churches everywhere we need for a church to reclaim ground and claim territory as the body of Christ, again, again, in the light 
of the resurrection. Does everybody understand that we are here to be the first fruits, the results of the resurrection? Okay, six of you understand that. That's good. We'll start with those six. But we are here to be an outpost in some sense because of the resurrection, because of the empowerment of the Spirit, seen most clearly in the second chapter of Acts and Pentecost. We are enabled to be what God dreams for us to be. In fact, we are enabled to be what God dreams for all of creation to be, but God's dream has always been that it would start with us, the people of God, the body of Christ. Now listen to that language. It is God's hope that we would be the tangible, touchable expression of the hope and the purposes of God that we see most clearly in the person of Christ. It is God's hope that we can be Christ, all of us together, this body. So when it doesn't happen, it's sort of doubly tragic. When the church functions more like the outside world than the person of Christ, it's sort of doubly tragic. And so the church in Corinth was regularly doubly tragic. And so Paul writes to them. He says, man, you guys got to look less like your neighborhood around you and more like this Jesus. You got to figure out how to worship so that you're worshiping and your orientation is slowly changing so that you are looking more and more like this person of Christ and less and less like Sin City. Because the way that you're going about worship these days looks a whole lot like Sin City. Here is one example. As they did communion. Now, let's keep this in mind. Now, this is early, early on in our history as the church. We probably didn't have buildings. We probably had larger homes where people gathered to be the church and to, to go through the liturgies. Like the Lord's Supper. It was already a liturgy at that point. But here's the problem. You would meet in somebody's home, probably one of the larger homes, so probably one of the wealthier people's homes, and it would start, let's say, at 5 o'clock. 5 o'clock, we're going to have worship that will feature the Lord's Supper. Here's what they were doing. The wealthier people seemed to have gotten there first, and they sat at the best seats, and they ate all the food. <laughs> so that by the time the other 9 to 5 working people got there, who weren't wealthy enough to have a big house, who weren't wealthy enough to have servants to do the work for them, by the time they got there after clocking out of their jobs, there wasn't any food left. There wasn't any Eucharist left. And Paul is saying to them, yeah, this is one of those situations where you look more like the world and less like Jesus. You can't do communion that way, y'all. <laughs> you can't do it that way. That betrays the very heart of God that we see most clearly in the person of Christ. You can't, you can't let there be this pecking order in the church. Where the wealthiest folks who have the opportunity are there first and they get the best and they get the most and the folks who get there last, well, they don't get anything. If you think about it, Christ's parables are always upsetting that particular apple cart. And so Paul is saying, yeah, you should look more like that upset apple cart and less like Corinth. You can't do communion like that. When you come together, it is not really to eat the Lord's Supper, for when the time comes to eat, each of you goes ahead with your own supper, and one goes hungry, and another becomes drunk. 
Paul is saying to them, this is not what we mean when we say body of Christ. You have to do better. Now I know, Paul would say, this is just you reflecting your, your area, your culture, your context, but you have to be better than that in order to be an outbreak, an outpost of resurrection life where there is, where there is not this same pecking order. Hear this, and this is, I'm going to give you a little help here. At the end of the sentence will be a great time for an amen, right? But within the church, we're not supposed to have the same pecking orders that they have out there. There is an evenness to the church because there is an evenness to the grace of God. Is everybody okay with that? Because they're not all okay with that out there. Because out there, there are some phrases that circulate in the theology of the culture that go something like this. There is no free, and you get what you pay for, and you earn your keep. And I understand. I understand how and where those things function out there, but we must be different. There is an evenness to the grace of God. My friend John Reed over at uh, Fairview Missionary Baptist says it like this, and I love it. He says it every time that I've heard him. The ground at the foot of the cross is level. Love it. But not where the Corinthian church was concerned. And you can see it both in the way that they were doing communion and in the way that they were understanding spiritual gifts. Okay, so as we get to this, <laughs> as we get to this, understand that in Corinth, prior to Paul's planting a church there, there was still an air of spirituality. There was spirituality outside of the church. No one is surprised. Because we all are aware of people, even to this day, who understand themselves as spiritual. Not so much Christian or even religious, but I'm very spiritual. Never forget the day Kelly and I moved in. People came to see us and greet us from across the street. And here was the first thing they said to us upon finding out that we were pastors here. They said, oh, well, don't be pushing that stuff on us. We're not religious people. Now, we're spiritual, but we aren't religious people. In the same sort of way, the people in Corinth loved being spiritual. Not necessarily Christian, but loved being spiritual. And in fact, in other faith systems, they had what we might call manifestations of the Spirit or even gifts of the Spirit that would allow people to do or be or say things that they couldn't do or be or say otherwise. One of those things was this gift that we might call ecstatic speech. In other words, People outside of Christianity, this was not a Christian endeavor, but outside of Christianity, there was a religious system. And in this religious system, folks were granted the, the capacity to have this unintelligible speech. In fact, those folks granted that capacity to use this somehow secret language were understood to be more spiritual than anybody else. You talk about a pecking order. There was a pecking order where spiritual giftedness was concerned. Now, again, we're still outside of the conversation about Christ or Christianity. We're still well outside of all of that. Outside of Christianity, folks were speaking in tongues, let's say, because they participated in those other faith systems that you and I would call idolatrous faith systems. In those faith systems, they were speaking in tongues 
And then, with all of that in their cultural backdrop, they would come to church. They would come to church, and they would say things like what Simon the Magician said. Man, I need this spirit so that I can do this superpower thing. Like speak in tongues, because speaking in tongues is really important, and I will have a place of great status here if I could just speak in tongues. Well, you can see now, right, that much like Simon before, folks who got really excited about their superpower speaking in tongues, that was more about the person than about the purposes of God. All right, well, here's where I intend to start. I don't intend, I just think I'm going to start getting in trouble. Okay. So let's talk about spiritual gifts. By the way, the word translated as gifts probably isn't there in the first verse. It is later on, but in the first verse, it's probably spiritual things. In other words, Paul's saying, now let's talk about spiritual matters. Let's talk about this, these issues that have to do with spirit. And Paul seems to be saying, now, let me tell you what spirit we're talking about. Let's talk of this spirit so that we can kind of narrow down what we mean when we're Christians, what we mean when we say the spirit. The first thing he says is this. It's a very important point. If it is the spirit of God, then that spirit will help you to see that and enable you to say that Jesus is Lord. Now, I didn't get a whole lot of amens there because I think it's, it's one of those statements that we have heard so often that it doesn't really move the needle for us anymore. But, but hear this. Folks enabled by the Spirit really and truly enthrone Christ as their authority, ultimate authority. Ultimate authority, meaning while there are other authorities in our lives, legal authorities, Familial authorities. While there are other authorities in our lives, folks enabled by this Spirit of Christ are able to understand that we are first and foremost, before we are anything else, followers of Christ. So any spirit, any spiritual gift that causes you to say or embody something other than Jesus is Lord is not the Spirit of Christ. So, these spiritual gifts that allow for there to be this different kind of pecking order in the church. Oh, he's very, he has to sit here. It's a very important seat because he has the gift of tongues. Is not the Spirit of Christ and therefore not of the Spirit. We doing okay? You see, because if you and I actually live according to this mantra, one of the earliest confessions of faith, Jesus is Lord. We will, but if we're honest, if we truthfully live out this phrase, Jesus is Lord, we will be odd and different in the world. So the first thing we want to say about spiritual gifts in testing whether or not they're actually spiritual gifts, the kind that come from Christ himself, <laughs> the kind that come from God and the spirit of Christ, 
The first thing we want to say is this. Does it help us to embody the statement that Jesus is Lord? Any kind of manifestation of spiritual gifts that does not manifest in your life, underlying the fact that Jesus is Lord, is not what we're going to call, especially around here, a spiritual gift. I don't like when we can take these gift inventories, right, and grade out as having the gift of leadership, but we're not even registering as having the gift of mercy, right? What I don't like is that someone who has great scores where leadership is concerned and no scores where mercy is concerned can somehow opt out of being merciful. Can you imagine, can you imagine someone saying, well, I would really love to help you, and I know you're on fire. And I, I, yes, and I have access to water right here. I have a bucket right here. And I know, I know you're on fire, but sadly, I don't have the gift of mercy. I do have the gift of leadership, so I'm going to go tell somebody to get over here and put you out. Listen, I love the inventories that allow us to self-discover. We, we make great use of strengths. I believe in the sciences behind Myers-Briggs. I like the stuff that is done where love languages are, are concerned. And I do think, I do think that this process of self-discovery can help move the church and help a person to be more Christian. I do believe in something called fit. I just don't think it's the most important question. The more important question than where you fit is, what does God need in this moment? And the Spirit, perhaps, does the Spirit's best work when you're in a situation that doesn't necessarily fit you, but is exactly where God needs you. Okay, I'm just trusting. You're still smiling at me. That's good. So they had this pecking order, and, and Paul hated it, and he's trying to stamp it out, trying to change their focus and, and change their gaze so that they aren't so much looking at themselves and what all they can do, look at all these different ways that the Spirit has given me superpowers, but really to change their focus, not from who you are, but from what God wants to do in us and through us. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit Variety of services, but the same Lord, and varieties of activities, but it's the same God who activates all of them in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. All right, now here's something else. Your spiritual gift, whatever it happens to be in that moment, is meant to be employed at the church. Oh, and it seems super exclusive, John. Uh, and it seems contradictory to the other things I've heard you say about how important it is that we get out into the world. Yes, 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 yes. It is important that we get out into the world. And the way in which God seems to be willing to get out into the world is through the people of God known as the church. So as we all do what God calls us to do, to, to serve and help this place move along at the end of this service today. In fact, it will serve as our offertory it's a really cool slideshow coming up, and I want to give you some eyes to see what you're about to see. Jason worked very hard on this slideshow that I think is 42 minutes long. Is that right? 
Someone said, he better start it right now. He better start that thing right now. It's about 10 minutes long. But here's what I want you to see. I want you to see how varied we are. I want you to see the varied nature of our schedule. All the different things that we've been able to do in the year 2015. All the different kinds of people that we needed to pull off 2015. I want you to hear it as the closing move of this sermon. All of these people helped us. We had to have 100 volunteers just for uh, the, uh, every year we need 100 volunteers just for uh, Harvest Fest. I never call it the right thing. Is it Fall Fest? I never call it the right thing. It's Fall Fest. We need 100 volunteers for the big block party. We need more than 100 volunteers for our kids department. We need all kinds of people. And we can't be all that God dreams for us to be if you don't help us. Your gifts are to be employed to help us be who God dreams for us to be as the people of God, the body of Christ. Again, if you are given the gift somehow, in a moment, if you're given the gift of teaching, teach us. It's not just you can go to your workplace and proclaim yourself to be, hey, I, I, I took a gifts assessment, and you're in luck, boss, because... I can now teach you anything. <laughs> now, you may be naturally inclined and gifted to teach, but the Spirit, if the Spirit has helped you to be a teacher, use it here and help us be who we're supposed to be. I think a lot of us would look at the early church and feel like it was a little bit too much like a commune for our tastes. I think we would say, hmm, that seems a little too cult-like for me. <laughs> because they did. They, they kind of lived very close to one another. In many cases, they lived together, and they learned to rely on one another, and they were their own civilization in so many different ways. Now, not closed off from the world, because in being their own little civilization, what was happening is on a regular basis, they were trained to re-enter the world. So while I'm trying to narrow our focus right now, I'm trying to say to you, you need to figure out how it is that God is calling you to help around here. I'm not leaving the rest of the world out. It's just this. I think that what we do as we gather every week, as we gather most days of the week, every time we get together, we are being rehearsed and prepared and practiced in all that we need to do and be and say out there. The rest of the world out there is better off if you are helping here and getting your training and your marching orders and all of your dance moves here. And the spiritual gifts are the ways in which God enables you to help us be us. Have you ever heard of this? 20% of the people do 80% of the work. It is absolutely true. But here's the thing. That 80% not doing the work, they are living beneath their privilege as the sons and daughters of God. And we can be more, do more, say more if you will listen as God calls you to take your place here. What would we be if 100% of the people did 100% of the work let me tell you what we would be, unstoppable. 
I'm not sure we're stoppable now. Imagine if everybody was on board. Turns out, you're supposed to do more and be more than just attend and be an attender. You're supposed to help. And God will help you help because who we are is crucial to what God wants to do in the entire world. I'm going to say that again. Who we are together and the way that we function together is crucial when it comes to what God wants to do in and through us for the rest of the world. You've got to find your spot. One more thing to say. All these are activated by one and the same spirit who allots to each one individually, just as the spirit chooses. Okay. And this is why I was late to Sunday school, because we got into this and it was so good, the end of our discussion. I want us to do all the assessments and ask all the questions so we can find where you best fit. Because for sure, for sure, God can use you where you best fit where you are naturally gifted and inclined. We can use you in those places. And we can use people in places where they don't fit at all. Or don't you read scripture? Because think about it. How often in our narrative does God choose someone who doesn't seem to actually fit in the role in which he or she has been placed? And what that does then is it draws the attention back where it's supposed to be. Wow, look what God is doing now. Ugh. So I read on a blog this week. It's an educator by the name of Tim Elmore. And he said as he counsels students, especially as they are nearing the end of their uh, college careers and they're about to enter the workplace, as he says, uh, he's completely changed all the questions that he's asking college students. He used to ask them, what do you want to do? What do you want to be? How are you shaped? How are you formed? He says, the questions I'm asking them now are better questions, and they actually have more formative influence. Here are the questions he's asking now. <laughs> Not so much, what do you want to do? But what does the world need? <laughs> it's not a bad question. How are you formed? How are you organized? It's not a bad question. It's just a second place question. It's a good one. Let's keep asking it. Let's keep exploring the ways in which you are organized. Let's see where it is that you are naturally inclined. Let's see what your raw talent themes are. And let's try to coach you into those strengths so that they can be strengths and not just raw talent themes, Mindy. That is a great question. It's just second place. The more important question is this. Where does God need you? Where does God need you? And perhaps some of our story's greatest moments have occurred when people answered the call and allowed themselves to be moved into a place where they did not fit because God was able to be God and the Spirit enabled people to be and do and say what they never could have done otherwise because they just weren't inclined. Tell a story myself a little bit here. Um, not too long ago, I, I said to our, our 
children's pastor. Her name is Lisa Sanders, by the way. It's our children's pastor. And I was looking at the roster of very talented people, very talented people, and so talented that this one particular couple stood out because Lisa, they don't like kids. They're not good with kids. Duh, Lisa, come on. And Lisa's wise admonition to me was, well, they're, they're getting better. <laughs> they're doing better and better and better. Now, this conversation I'm talking about that I had with her was probably two years ago. Just this week, <laughs> when asked to list her most faithful and powerful workers, she listed these two people first. You know why? Because they said yes, and the Spirit has moved them to a better place. So this is my gripe with spiritual gifts. This is my gripe. The way that we have talked about spiritual gifts leaves too much of the emphasis on you. And it seems like we're asking you, how are you designed, and what do you want to be when you grow up? Where do you best fit? Which is not a terrible question, but the better question that we're not asking often enough is this. Where does God need you? Where does God need you? Think about it. Pray about it. And if you are all the time seeing this spot where God needs you, and you catch yourself saying, yeah, but I am not fit for that kind of service, recognize that the Spirit will help you and can help you to be more than you thought possible. Spiritual gift inventory. I'm not sure that you take this passage and the passage in Romans. I'm not sure that that is an exhaustive list of the different spiritual gifts necessary to move and run a church. I think they were just ways for Paul to make Paul's point. What if there is a thousand million different things that are needed for a church to be the very people of God? I think that's probably true. So Paul's point is not where is your specific place of fit it is. What can the Spirit help you to do or be or say so that we can finally answer the call of God on our lives? To be the people of God. Hey, it matters whether or not you go to church. Does everybody know that? Okay, more of you should know that. It matters whether or not you go to church. It matters whether or not you're involved in the life and work, the breathing in and out of your church. It really matters. And not just for us, we need you, but also for you. It matters. Because the better question, not just for us as a church, the people who benefit by your service, but also for you, the believer. The better question, better than where do I fit, is where does God need me? Gifts are not merit badges for holiness or signs of approval from God, but gifts are God's response to the needs of our worshiping communities. Oh. One of the commentators I read said that. I don't know if I can say it any better than that. In fact, I'm going to read it one more time. Listen to this. Gifts are not merit badges for holiness or signs of God's approval, but gifts are God's response to the needs of our worshiping communities. 
Whew. And so it does matter how you're designed. It does matter what your inclinations are. It does matter what those assessments say. It does matter. Like all the way up here. And then there's all the way up here, which is, where does God need me? Because we're supposed to be the very expression, the tangible expression of Jesus himself. Well, now we're back to our sermon series title, Fear and Desire. <laughs> Fear? Yeah. Have you ever tried to be Jesus? It's frightening at work, perhaps at home, at school, on the roads. And yet there's something about it. Made as we are in the image of God when we finally allow the Spirit to place us where the Spirit wants to place us. There is a resonance there that can't be found anywhere else. Where does God need me? And once you get to that place, that's a resonance that can't be well described. We're asked to be the body of Christ, and so I would ask those who help us week in, week out with this liturgy, meant to nourish us to be that body, the bread and the cup, come and help us now. Heavenly Father, bless these elements. Bless these elements, Lord, and, and by them, nourish us to be your people. God, give us just enough strength to answer your call to serve. God, if necessary, heal us of our busyness. God, if necessary, heal us of our lack of confidence that won't allow us to even consider places where we don't think we fit. God, as important as it is that we continue to try to self-discover, as important as it is that we ask and answer the questions about our own design and how we do reflect your image, remind us that there is an even larger question, especially, God, as we read through Scripture and we see folks like David. The other characters in Scripture that are used so mightily, yet are so surprising to the folks who are around just looking and watching. God, as we continue to have this discussion of spirituality and of gifts and manifestations, remind us that we're talking about the very same spirit that brought life to a crucified Christ. The same spirit that filled Christ's lungs. Remind us, God, we're talking about that same spirit. In a moment, I'm gonna ask you to stand and exit your pew to the left, at which time you will come forward to somebody holding a plate of bread. Make sure you come with your hands cupped to receive this gift. As you do, the person holding the bread will take a piece of bread and press it into your hands and say to you, this is the body of Christ broken for you. Take that piece of bread, then dip it into the cup. Someone standing right there will be holding a cup and you dip it into the cup, that person will say, and this is the blood of Christ shed for you. 
and then take and eat right then and there. This is meant to be nourishment to help us, you and I, to have the strength and the orientation that will allow us to be the body of Christ. You see, my hope is, my hope is that every time, <laughs> every time we see the bread taken, blessed, broken, and given, we come closer to recognizing that we're kind of talking about ourselves, that at some point God would be able to, in the same sort of way, take us, break us, bless us, and give us. It was on the night that he was betrayed that our Savior took bread, he held it up before them, blessed it, he broke it, and gave it to them saying, this is my body now broken for you, for you. Every time you eat of this bread, remember me. And I would remind us too to be nourished toward the capacity to answer the call of God on our lives. After supper, and in the same way, he took the cup and he held it up before them and he said, and this is my blood, the blood of a new covenant, and every time you drink of it, remember me. And I would say, and remember that you are being nourished toward your capacity, toward that capacity to answer with the yes, the call of God on our lives, yours too. Now after you take and eat, you'll have a decision to make. There are padded altars on the sides over here. And if you need a prayer for healing of any kind, physical, mental, emotional, relational, theological, if you need a prayer for healing, someone will meet you there and pray that prayer for healing. And then there are these other benches. These are open for any kinds of prayers. If you have any kind of prayer to pray, please find a place to pray here. It's not that you can't pray where you are. I know you can. But when you pray up here, you will find that you are not alone. Someone will touch you and remind you that you are not alone as you pray all across the sanctuary now. I need to say, I forgot to say this. If you can't come to us, Jason and Katie will come to you. And also, every Sunday, this is a great opportunity to remind yourself of your baptismal vows. And we have a little bowl of water here. And all you have to do is kind of dip your fingers into that water. There's a towel right here to dry them off. And in so doing, hopefully, you'll remember what it means to be amongst the baptized. And now, all across the sanctuary, if you would, stand to your feet, exit your pew to the left, come forward and receive these gifts of encouragement, sustenance, inspiration. Welcome to the 
God of grace, favor 
we're going to continue in a time of prayer as response. And so whatever is your most comfortable place to pray, you may want to join those, some who are surrounded in this place. You can pray or kneel at your seat, and those of you who want to remain standing can do so as well. And so, Jesus, we ask that you would continue to use us, use our giftedness, our strengths, Lord, for the building up of this body, Lord, and for your kingdom in this neighborhood, in this nation, and around the world. God, may you use us to glorify you. Would you take us and mold us and shape us to be your people, the true body of Christ in our world. Lord, we're grateful for the ways in which you have used us and are going to use us. There may be some who've come to this place and they've said, I have not been used by God. I'm one of the few who come to this place and i just not using my gifts, my giftedness. I'm not leaning on you. And so, Lord, for those of us who are in that spot, would you give us, God, the courage, the time, maybe the reprioritization of our lives to find ways in which, God, we can come alongside of you for the building up of this body and of your kingdom around the world. So, Lord, give us courage, grace, and imagination. We want to spend a couple of moments in some prayers for of intercession for those who are in this body who need specific healing touches from the Lord. And Lord, we want to ask today that you'd come alongside Ken Hardy. We ask God you'd heal him of all cancer. Keep him strong, sharp, be with he and his family. Lord, we lift up Carolyn Shea and ask God you would come alongside of her and thank you for the good news that it looks like she's able to return to a rehab facility and away from the hospital tomorrow. Lord, thank you for the work that you've done in her life and continue, God, to breathe the breath of your spirit into her lungs and into her life. Lord, we ask you to be with Teresa Veach, one of our most faithful in the body of Christ, to be a volunteer here and in the Cole Center. Lord, as she continues to rest at this hospital, Lord, would you bring her healing, restoration, and strength that she may return home and return to her portion of service very soon. And there's others. So that person who you're thinking about now in your mind who needs a specific healing touch from God, and that touch can be a physical one. It can be one of mental health and mental healing. And it can also be relational, any sort of healing touch from God. If you have someone who God has put into your mind now, would you pray for them in these moments? Lord, we're so grateful you're using us as the body so much to do so many wonderful things that you are leading us in. God, we ask you to be here tonight as this night of praise for district youth across the metro in Oklahoma City and across the state. Be with us tomorrow as we get the opportunity to serve at the Martin Luther King Jr. Day Parade. Lord, go ahead of us and be with us. Lord, thank you for the opportunity we have for Outpost tonight. Lord, for opportunities this week with Kids Club. Lord, go with us and go before us and use us. 
Lord, would you use all of us and transform us into a people who believe and embody and live into this prayer. In church, we're going to pray the, the prayer that the Lord taught his disciples to pray, and we use it each week using debts and debtors. So please pray along with me. If you're unfamiliar with this prayer, it'll be on the screen in front of you. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever.